For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Happy Fashion Revolution Week! We've got a bonus episode for you in collaboration with Fashion Revolution. I am delighted to interrupt our regular scheduling of Series 5 to bring you a fab conversation with my friend Nicole Rycroft, who is the founder and executive director of Canopy. It's a non-for-profit organisation that works to protect our precious forests globally. They also work with business to change supply chains so that they don't use trees unsustainably. What's all that got to do with fashion? Well, you're about to find out. Do we really use ancient trees to make trivial things? Oh my God, this is bad. Try pizza boxes and party frocks. It's an outrage and you'll hear me getting mad in our chat, but it's also an opportunity for change and Canopy is doing something about it. It really is one of my favourite organisations. If you want to help them, you can find them at canopyplanet.org. And don't forget to check in with Fashion Revolution to see what's happening this week. There's so much on. You can just Google them. You can find them on Instagram in your various countries. As you know, my Fashion Revolution love knows no bounds. Before we start, though, a quick word on our very own exciting new sustainability project, Wardrobe Crisis Academy. I told you about that last week. It launches in May and you can sign up for the first course via our website, which is thewardrobecrisis.com. There's more info in this week's interval. Now... Let's hang out with the very best tree hugger I know, Nicole Rycroft. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Nicole Rycroft. I'm so happy that we're getting to do this. Me too. It's been a while in the making, huh? I know we've been trying, but we're doing this very special conversation for Fashion Revolution, which makes it even better. Indeed. One of my favourite organisations working to revolutionise the fashion industry. I'd love to begin just by asking you where you are, and I don't mean in your house, but where your house is. Are you surrounded by trees? You're in Vancouver. I am. I'm in Vancouver, which is on the west coast of Canada, and uh, I'm not surrounded by trees, but I have a park. My house looks out onto a park, which has some really beautiful trees in it, and I can see from here across to the North Shore Mountains, which are not very far away. And it's just a blanket of green that I get to look out on. Uh, and those forests have been a real lifesaver, actually, in this past year when we've all been in kind of various stages of lockdown. I was just going to tell you this, that I went to the park to try to shake off my desk energy because yesterday I sat at a desk all day for like 15 hours. And it was so nice and there were birds everywhere. And I was really hoping to see the kookaburras who are sometimes there. And they came and they were all laughing at me and they were kind of perched, looking chubby on the tree. It was so nice. <laughs> Kookaburras are like my favourite way to wake up. In fact, I actually have a ringtone and have kookaburras as my, um, my wake-up alarm. Moved to Canada. Uh, there was an Aussie friend of mine that was living here at the time and uh, you know, Canadians are so polite and I was just constantly offending people just by, you know, being an Aussie, right? Being direct. And, uh, and she drew this great analogy for me, which was like, you know, like Australians and Canadians are kind of like the birds that you have in Australia and Canada and that in Canada, the birds are beautiful and they're quiet and they're, 
you know, like they're there as part of the scenery and and then in Australia you have like, you know, cockatoos and galahs, like loud, squawky, <laughs> kind of loud and obnoxious really. And that is kind of the parallel between our two countries. You're so softly spoken. I don't see it, but I love the squawking birds. I love the cockatoos going crazy. I love it all. They really make me happy. Do you feel that way when you come across nature and are surrounded by trees? I always feel like that. I feel like that when I'm in the ocean, I surf, and I feel like that when I'm in a forest. Like, I find it impossible. Like, if I've gone in on a walk, like even around the park, but if I go into a forest on a walk, if I've been feeling a little bit troubled or stressed, I feel lighter when I come out. I find it both calming and energizing at the same time. I always liked that idea of, I think it's a, a Japanese, I don't know if it's a tradition, but it's certainly a cultural happening that they forest bathe. I love that as well. Yeah. And they've documented the tangible health benefits that there are, right? Like people's cortisol levels. So the stress hormones drop, they have lower blood pressure, like all those fantastic benefits mm -hmm. just by being surrounded by green and, and all the pheromones that uh, trees emit. Have you ever hugged a tree? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm a professional tree hugger, Clay, you know no, but that. But actually physically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like it's a little prickly sometimes, but yeah, I, I like to give trees a little bit of a love up every now and then. Me too. And a salute. I'm always hugging trees. If you see me in the park, I am that crazy lady who stops and cuddles. I just, I feel that there's something in that. Now, look, I think people might expect us to start this podcast with the story of global forests in peril and the link with fashion production. But I did determinedly, on purpose, want to start off talking about love and about connection. So my first question to you, Nicole, is could you describe a forest or a treed area that you love and take us there? What does it look like? What does it smell like, sound like? And why would you be there? Well, there are so many good reasons to be in a forest and there are so many spectacular forests to choose from, but I'm going to go, given that I'm in on the west coast of Canada, I'm going to go with the Great Bear Rainforest. And I was there in fall of 2019 in a really remote area with a First Nations guide from local First Nations community whose traditional territory that we're in. Um, we had to kind of, you know, get off the boat on the rocks uh, and scramble up and then immediately disappeared into this like storybook forest. You know, it's a hyper wet forest. It's a cool forest. It's a temperate rainforest, um, but just lush understory, so vibrant in terms of the different shades of green. Um mm and pungent with the smell of decaying cedars, massive, massive cedars that it takes, you know, like 12 people with their arms outstretched to kind of reach around. And we hiked through this beautiful stretch of forest, this beautiful grove of trees, and came to a stream that actually had a little bit of a waterfall. And so it was very difficult to actually talk to each other because mm -hmm. of the sound of the river. And we just sat there very quiet, listening to the run of the river. And probably about 90 minutes after we'd arrived, a spirit bear popped out of the forest on the other side 
And a spirit bear is is a white-furred black bear. So they're very I was going to say, what do they look like? I don't know. Yeah. We'll share a picture. They're only found on this very small section of the coast of British Columbia. And they are very gentle, very dexterous. Like they're massive, massive creatures. And, and they're basically able to kind of type walk across logs that are suspended over the falls and they go fishing for salmon. It was such a beautiful moment. I actually cried. Um, oh, I would because... even just listening to you, but I'm grinning listening to you because I think the magic of being in nature and being surrounded by forests and also the, I think, privilege and I was going to say, I don't know, I want to use the word honour, but I think it's the wrong word, but I do honour the process of just being allowed to be present when animals are around or I just think there's something I don't know how to even put it in words because it is very emotional like it's not thinky right it's not about me trying to describe it it's about how you feel yeah it's about being in that moment and recognizing that you're part of a much larger organism and that we are part of it that we Mm. interact with it now I asked you to set the scene with taking us to a forest environment because it's so important for us to connect to this conversation if we're actually going to try to make change and try to understand how how we can protect our forests but also why we should right yeah connecting to trees is kind of critical right like we we protect the things that we care about and you know it's so easy to get sort of you know, feel removed from nature, especially when we live in cities and we have busy lives. But even as you described earlier on, going for a walk in the park, sitting on a bench, listening to the birds around us, lying under your favorite tree, reading a book, all those things. What's your favorite tree's fact? Oh, well, you know, I was recently having a conversation with Suzanne Samad, who is a fantastic scientist, you know, the inspiration for one of the characters in the overstory. And she's pioneered a lot of the work uh, and thinking around how trees communicate and support each other. And I love that nature is actually not a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, which we are so often kind of brought up to believe, right? Like that nature is full and trees are mutualistically supportive of each other, that they're community, that they communicate with each other, that they look out for each other, they share nutrients. When one of them has a bug that sort of burrows into the bark, they send out a signal to warn the others that they need to kind of pop up their protection mechanisms. I love that. I love it too. And also this whole thing about nature by tooth and claw, it's just rubbish actually. I mean, I've read a lot around this. It's sort of the patriarchy, colonialism and Christianity, like the whole idea of dominion over. And actually nature is, I mean, think about Gaia theory. Nature's just in harmony. Of course there is death and of course there is predatory behaviour and eating each other, but that isn't it. Nature's balance, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think the... That concept of, you know, as human beings, we have dominion over nature. It's been so destructive, um, not just to nature, but also to ourselves and our own kind of well-being within it. We've gone off piste, but do you blame Darwin? Do I, do I blame Darwin? <laughs> you know, I, I think that 
Darwin's ideas have been kind of manipulated yeah. uh, and taken out of context because I don't think he was just about it's a dog eat dog world, right? Like he mm. he recognized mutualisms and kind of within the evolutionary process as well. Nicole, do you think we're moving towards more of an understanding that we are part of a greater whole and that there must be balance between humans and nature? Or do you think we've already had that and we've that's the wrong question, isn't it? Because, of course, Indigenous peoples have always known that. It's a kind of Western, I don't know what it is. Where does it come from? Yeah, I think Western cultures are catching up with the fact that we live within a system that is alive that we are part of, that we can't control. And that's why I think we see millions of young people this past year of COVID-19 notwithstanding, like we have millions of young people out in the street. Like they know that we need to change the way that we interact with our natural world. And I think there are a lot of people that are older than kind of many of the student strikers uh, that also have felt that for a long time and have kind of awakened back into it. So mm. it's an exciting time, I think, mm. in that respect. I love the fact that our relationship with farce starts the very moment that we draw our first breath. Like, I love that. I think it's such a powerful thing. Forests are foundational to life on Earth. They make the air that we breathe. They make and draw precipitation across continents. They're home to many of the world's indigenous communities. They're home to 80% of the terrestrial species that we share this planet with. They clean our water. And keeping carbon-rich forest standing is the cheapest and fastest way for us to stabilize our climate. I think they're magic. I think they're magic too. Um, you founded Canopy, which is a non-profit organisation dedicated to protecting the world's forests. 20 years ago at your kitchen table um, at home in Vancouver Island. Yes, many grey hairs ago. Yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> I did. I, I'm My background is as a physiotherapist and an elite level athlete. So nothing to do with the environment, nothing to do with, um, you know, saving the world's forests or, or transforming business. But I've always felt really passionate about wild places and forest ecosystems in particular. And, you know, I was compelled by the conviction that we didn't need to cut down 400-year-old trees to make T-shirts or pizza boxes, that there had to be a smarter way for us to do it. And so I was like, okay, well, if I feel so strongly about it, then let's do something about it. And so... It was literally at the kitchen table. I sweet-talked um, and had the trust of a couple of NGOs. They each gave me $200 each, so I had an $1,800 budget for my first year. And uh, and then the rest has been a very fun ride from there. I love that you started out on a shoestring, but you've just won the Climate Breakthrough Award that's a game changer, right? Is it $3 million? What does it mean for Canopy and how are you going to use it? Well, it, I mean, it absolutely is a game changer. It's amazing to have that kind of recognition of our work, right? Like that vote of confidence in our ability to take bold and some might even say sometimes crazy ideas and to actually make them happen. Um, so, you know, when we 
actually announced the news. We rolled out our own red carpet and tiara, and that $3 million is going to be dedicated to a part of our work that's really focused on kickstarting commercial scale production of next generation solutions and making sure that we mobilize uh, kind of investment and finance into enabling these game-changing technologies that can help take the pressure off forest ecosystems. Okay, we're going to get on to next generation solutions, but let's talk about forests in peril and forests under threat and what that means. The UN says we need to protect 30 to 50% of the world's forests by 2030. Why is that? Why is the UN and the scientific community talking about this need to really step up protecting the world's forests? Mm-hmm. Well, humanities, as you know, is grappling with two planetary crises, the climate crisis and the precipitous decline in biodiversity. Now, forests represent 30% of the climate solution and their habitat for 80% of the terrestrial biodiversity that we share this planet with. So conserving half of the world's forest by 2030 is actually critical to mitigating both of those challenges. And this past year has shown us that protecting forests is also critical for protecting human health. So conserving forests is not just a matter of, you know, our natural world being in harmony. It's also directly beneficial for humanity because 75% of the new diseases that we're grappling with are crossing the animal-human barrier. And when we log intact forest landscapes, we're unleashing these pathogens to which we have absolutely no resistance. And so MERS, SARS, COVID-19, Ebola, they are all diseases that have obviously significantly impacted humanity since 2003 and are as a result of climate change and and the logging of intact landscapes. We're encroaching on once wild spaces and there's lots of research about this and that kind of connection with the destruction of the natural world and an increased threat to human health is very clear, isn't it? Absolutely. We share this planet with 68% less animals than we did when I grew up as a kid in the 1970s. Is that right? Isn't that awful? What a number. I know. It's just like, I I hate that number. Like, sometimes I feel like when you pick up a scientific journal, you need to pick up a glass of wine at the same time. But there's such sobering news, generally. Same. I was actually going to ask you how you stay positive and ploughing forwards, because I do find this stuff extremely emotional when I think about the loss, what we stand to lose, and how completely devastating it is to look at the loss of things like the Amazon or species loss or, I don't know, it's so hard to grapple with it. How do you kind of set aside your emotions around that and just keep doing the work? Because I think that's relevant to all of us working within sustainability, be it fashion or forestry or all of those areas. Like, how do you keep going? There's a couple of things in what you just asked, one of which is I don't think we want to take the emotion out of this, right? Because emotions can really fuel us. Like we work to protect the things that we care about. And so, you know, we'll stay that extra hour, we'll do that extra thing, we'll think about something in a different way in the shower as we're going for a walk. And that's where kind of, you know, game-changing solutions can come forward. So I don't think we want to take the emotion out of it, but I think we also want to recognize that no one wants to join the army of the glum, right? And oftentimes as a movement, we can be kind of downer-ish 
And that's not really a kind of an upbeat sort of or energy from which to think about ways to sort of drive forth solutions or to have other people galvanize towards it. And so, I mean, I would say I'm a naturally fairly positive person. I get to work on issues that I feel absolutely passionate about. And so that in itself is motivating. And, uh, you know, on the days when it's a tough, you know, when I read that they're still logging in koala habitat or that deforestation rates went up in 2020, then I choose to be optimistic mm. and channel that emotion into how I can work smarter to change it. Welcome to Wardrobe Crisis Academy. I'm Claire Press, I'm the founder and one of the course leaders. Are you curious about sustainability in fashion? Do you want to learn more about the issues that you care about? Is there stuff you find confusing about this topic? Or do you want to make your business more sustainable, but you can't afford a fancy consultant? Or maybe you want to upskill so that you can influence change in a bigger organisation. Maybe you just have that feeling that you know you could be a leader in this space and you just want more information and more support. Wardrobe Crisis Academy is for you. There's something for everyone wherever you sit in the fashion ecosystem, whether you're in the business or want to be or are just someone who loves clothes. In these courses, we want to help you find your way into making fashion more sustainable. Or if you already have, we want to supercharge it, really hone in on what's driving you to make sustainable change and to help you employ it as effectively as possible in your work and life. To get ahead, you need to be armed with the facts and as much knowledge as possible about the big issues and how they intersect. But you also need to understand the challenges and the opportunities. And that's what we're here for. We've designed these courses to be rich with information that goes in and stays in, but also really inspiring and get you participating, because that's where the change happens. We're launching our school in May. It's online and everyone's welcome. It won't break the bank. That is like one of the big, big things about this. You can buy a course for the cost of dinner and you'll also be able to subscribe and access a whole bunch of them. Sustainable Fashion 101 is our introductory course designed to give you a foundational knowledge of the issues driving sustainable and ethical fashion now and to empower you to start taking more action. It's structured over six weeks and it's delivered in partnership with Arch and Hook, the world's number one sustainable hanger brand, as well as the Australian Fashion Council. But it's global, so anywhere around the world you can access these courses and learn with us together. There's a lot more to come and I invite you to join us. To be first, go to thewardrobecrisis.com for more details. It's interesting. I know that we do have to be very careful around the overwhelm and that people really do struggle. And I get it. But there is something in this, not just being Pollyanna or a happy optimist, but in prioritising the positivity and the good energy. And like you say, no one wants to join a depressing movement. You're an Aussie. I did a lovely podcast with David Ritter, who is the CEO of Greenpeace, Asia Pacific. And he talked the whole way through about love. He thought love was the answer. And I I loved it. That's what drew me to this work. I mean, you know, sure, you can feel angry about things, but I was a physiotherapist and a national level athlete, really. But I had an absolute love of wild places and just a faith that we could be doing things in a smarter way. And that's what really drew me. uh, Tell you what, I'm joining your movement. It's lovely. Right on. (laughs) We're recruiting, so that's perfect. Now, you... Back to the glum. 
Right. You said, yes. no one wants to be, I'm paraphrasing, can't remember the exact words, but you said, no one wants to be thinking about forests being logged to make pizza boxes. Now, when I hear that, and I first heard that phrase or that line from you, and I, it stops you short. You think, well, of course, we're not doing that. I mean, surely there are renewable forests that we would be using in order to create paper products. But surely we're not in forests taking trees down to make packaging. Come on. Come on. It is crazy that in 2021, we are still cutting down high carbon, high biodiversity value forests to make T-shirts, shipping boxes, pizza boxes. And, you know, at Canopy, we're out to change that, right? Like we are smarter than having to cut down a 400-year-old tree to make a T-shirt that will be worn, whatever it is, an average of 10 times before it's thrown out or a single-use shipping box. And there are alternatives. When I first started this work, I just assumed that paper and packaging was made from recycled content or from plantation fiber. But, you know, 75% of the fiber that's used is from ecologically rich, biologically diverse forest ecosystems. 80% of what's logged in Canada is in old growth forests. Koala habitats being logged in Australia to make both packaging and fabrics. Peatlands in Indonesia have been converted into plantations, but those peatlands need to actually have plantations taken out of them so that they can actually be restored and hold the carbon that they are massive storehouses of. So, It seems to me to be a, an epic failing of common sense because, as you say, there are other ways to do it. It is. There are other ways to do it. And so, and ways that are, you know, humanity has developed this construct that there is a thing that's known as waste. But in nature, there's no such thing as waste, right? Like everything is part of a kind of a perpetual cycle. And so... We have alternatives. We don't have to cut down vibrant forest ecosystems to make products. And, and we currently rely almost exclusively on forests to make paper and packaging and, and viscose and rayon and other pulp-driven uh, things. Okay, Canopy has just released a video called Survival, a Pulp Thriller. Here's a line from it. We need to protect the world's forests and save them from ending up as boxes, paper, or viscous for your little black dress. Instead of logging endangered forests, we can use discarded materials to make fabrics and packaging. These next-generation solutions are here today. What are next-generation solutions? How do you define that? So the revolution that needs to happen on materials is our accelerated transition to next generation solutions that are fundamentally more circular in nature. Next gen solutions are both smarter systems and product designs that enable us to use less fiber. And they're also the alternative fibers that are byproducts of other production systems that carry fundamentally lighter footprints. So things such as waste textiles, or agricultural residues, microbial cellulose that can be grown on food waste. All of these are currently considered as wastes, but they are spectacular for making the next season's clothing or packaging and paper and a myriad of other products that we currently chop down vibrant forest ecosystems to make. I want to talk about some of those specific materials, but first, sure. I'd love your opinion on the kind of counter argument that I see all the time, I saw it this morning on Twitter, which is 
just stop overconsuming. Circularity is a nonsense because all you're doing is using it as an excuse to keep on consuming and making more and more. Now, I don't hold to that. I do subscribe to circularity as one of the great hopes of how we can fix things. But what do you say to that? Is not the best solution to simply reframe our relationship with the natural world and stop making so much stuff? Well, I think it's not an either or. It's a yes and. So yes, absolutely. Overconsumption is a core driver of many of the environmental and human rights problems that we're grappling with. And we do need to rethink our relationship with the natural world and the social license that we currently provide to extractive industries like the logging industry. Why do we allow the logging of carbon and wildlife-rich traditional territories for making boxes and and T-shirts? And we also, like even chimpanzees have a footprint, right? Um, And so we will continue. This is not about us crawling back into the cave in terms of our lifestyles. Uh, And so we need to both grapple with consumption as well as transition to more circular economy production systems. Okay, so Canopy has this target of 50% reduction in the amount of forest fibre that's going into packaging and also viscose for clothing. Mm -hmm. You say that it's ambitious but achievable. My two favourite words together. Right. But you also say that investment is needed that's not inconsiderable, but that pales in comparison to the cost of inaction. So I guess the big question is, how do we do it? Well, I think the bottom line or the top line, maybe the headline is that we absolutely can make this transition. Like there's more than enough agricultural residue. There's more than enough waste textile produced every year to replace 50% of the forests that are currently being logged to make paper and clothing and pulp. And we have strong demand from brands. In fact, Canopy has currently documented more than 500,000 tons of explicit demand in strategic letters of interest to purchase next generation solution alternative fibers. And we have a strong pipeline of game-changing technologies like the Evernews and the Renew Cells and the Nanoluses of the world. And so now we need to mobilize the investment uh, to enable these game-changing technologies to be able to actually scale. Government has an important role to play, obviously, with enabling conditions. But that's really what's needed. And in survival, we outlined that it's going to take a $69 billion investment to basically transition and build the infrastructure that's needed over the course of the next decade. Now, that sounds like a lot of money to you and me. It sounds like a lot of money to you with 200 bucks at your kitchen table. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in the big scheme of things, it's not actually that much money for this kind of an investment. You know, Joe Biden has just tabled a $2 trillion infrastructure bill in the US. The company that sells Botox actually sold for $68 billion in 2018. Like if we can afford $68 billion for Botox, surely we can afford $69 billion to save the planet. And The cost of not dealing with climate change, like climate change is estimated that it will cost $8 trillion 
by 2050 with the droughts and floods. And so, you know, this year has been a bit of a spoiler alert around the social and economic disruption that comes with not dealing with climate change and habitat disruption. So $69 billion seems like a steal. And a lot of these sort of new generation wonder fabrics, if you like, stall or stay in the lab because investment isn't there. We do need brands to get behind them in order to actually use them. Otherwise, they'd just remain bright ideas, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, the best ideas stay just that unless they actually move to market. And so that's one of the areas that Canopy really focuses on, on breaking these really promising technologies out of the laboratory and into the marketplace. So we work with brand partners to actually pilot them. Uh, We speed date commercial scale, existing commercial scale producers to trial those new technologies and start integrating them into their production systems. And we are working with investors to mobilize the scale of investment that's needed. Because of course, like these mills are big infrastructure. Um, and so they come with a price tag that requires some significant finance. Can we talk a bit about that direct link between forests and fashion? I first heard of 150 million trees being logged a year for viscose from Stella McCartney. She was talking on a stage and she said this thing and I hadn't known the numbers were that high. I did understand that viscose came from wood, but I didn't know the numbers were that high. And I feel like after that conversation, I heard a lot that people hadn't even understood that viscose comes or is derived from wood or wood pulp or cellulosics. Yeah, I think I, I think you're ahead of the curve, actually, Claire. I think a lot of people don't know that the soft, silky fabric that they're wearing next to their skin in their favorite dress or in the lining of their suit jacket has actually come from a forest ecosystem. That some, you know, a tree that stands tall in a forest and can give you a splinter actually goes through a, a process that leads to it being a viscose and rayon fabric. But yes, there are actually now it's. 200 million trees that are logged every year to make viscose and rayon clothing. And it is a bit of an unknown cost that doesn't pop on a lot of fashion lovers' radars. But, you know, definitely having champions like Stella and influencers such as yourself uh, raising awareness around it is kind of enabling people to be more informed. Can you give us an idea of what percentage of that 200 million trees is coming from valuable biodiverse, maybe even old growth forests? Yeah, so it's probably between 30 and 45%. Still? Um, still, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely the market is squeezing down. So when we first started off, it was probably up in the 45% range. And I mean, I can talk a little bit about canopy style and the momentum that we're generating there. Um, but last I heard that we were kind of more in with looking back through the supply chain uh, and where the fiber was coming from, that, you know, it was probably kind of in that 30 to 40 percent range. I do feel quite angry, actually. It's an outrage. How is it possible that even a tiny percent of this fibre that we're wearing in a form of a frock can actually come from a precious old growth forest. It seems to be completely bananas. There's koala habitat in Victoria being logged to make rayon and viscose. Really? Where are we sending it? How do you know? I don't know about this. It's being sent to uh, mills in Southeast Asia for production uh, into viscose. 
But origins here? Origins in Australia. Koala habitat, no less. After the bushfires. Crazy making. So part of the challenge, one of the big challenges is obviously having forest ecosystems like that, really critical, high carbon, high biodiversity value forests, endangered species habitat logged and then pulped and made into viscose and rayon fabric. But there are also eucalyptus plantations that are in, that have just been planted in the wrong area. Mm-hmm. Like they've been planted after kind of a rich natural forest ecosystem has been deforested and mm-hmm. cleared and it's been converted uh, to eucalyptus. And so that's also problematic because eucalyptus plantations or acacia plantations growing on really high carbon value peat are very problematic from a global climate stabilization perspective. And I don't want to go too deep into it, but presumably the same story applies to bamboo. Yeah, bamboo is... So in the hierarchy of things, sorry not to geek out too much with you about fibers, but in the hierarchy of things for us, it's, you know, waste textiles are the best uh, for reintegration back in agricultural residues. They're a byproduct of the food grain harvest and would otherwise be burnt or landfilled. And then you start getting into other on-purpose fibers that just have a fundamentally lighter footprint. So bamboo can be one of those fibers needs to be planted in the right places and not come from natural bamboo forest. Don't want to do anything bad for the pandas. Uh, But then you just need to be attentive to the chemical processing. There are three primary impacts, environmental impacts with viscose production. One is the impacts of the raw, raw material sourcing on forest ecosystems and on frontline communities in our climate. Second one is the chemical production. It's just a really chemically intensive process. And then the third area of impact is that it's a very inefficient process. You only end up with 22 to 40% of the tree that is fed into the dissolving pulp process actually coming out the other side as rayon and viscose. And in an increasingly resource-constrained world, we just don't have the luxury of having inefficient fibers like that. So you mentioned before that one of the next generation solutions is to use agricultural waste. Yep, or waste textiles. Or waste textiles. Talk us through and some if of you those. Use, sure, if you take waste textiles and put it into this process, then you put a T-shirt in at one end and you end up with you know, 95 to 99% of that textile coming out the other side as viscose fiber. It's just, a, it's a much more efficient process because what you're feeding in at the front end, especially if it's 100% cotton uh, or a combination of cotton and viscose, it's pure cellulose. And in the kind of garment making uh, side of things, it's cellulose that is the, that's the foundation of all of the textiles that we're wearing. What is canopy style and how much progress has it made uh, canopy style is our work within the fashion industry that's been focused on ensuring that fashion doesn't become an even kind of more aggressive driver of deforestation and forest degradation. Uh, it's been really focused on transforming the viscose supply chain. Um, it's also one of the fastest moving environmental initiatives in the fashion industry. Uh, We started it seven years ago when we discovered the link between forest ecosystems and rayon and viscose fabrics. 
Today, we now have more than 330 brands and designers and retailers with formal canopy style commitments in place. So they're committed to not source from ancient and endangered forests. They're committed to help kickstart commercial production of next generation circular alternatives. And they're working with us and their peers to actually conserve these vital forest landscapes around the world, like the Loser ecosystem in Indonesia. Can smaller brands join canopy style? Absolutely. So we've got, you know, big guys like Target and Zara and pace setters like Stella McCartney. And then we have a lot of really fantastic progressive designers who are also part of uh, the Canopy Star Fold. And because all of them have been sending a very consistent message back through their supply chain, we now have viscose producers that represent 90% of global viscose production with similar commitments in place to shift out of sourcing from ancient and endangered forests. And at the end of last year, we produce a hot button report or ranking every year of uh, the world's top viscose producers. Uh, 52% of global viscose production is now verified with a green shirt or at low risk of sourcing from ancient and endangered forest. And four of the top five viscose producers are now on market with their first commercial products that are made with 20 to 50 percent waste textile. It shows us the possibility of change. It shows us the possibility of change and it's exactly the scale and pace of change that's needed in this turnaround decade for our planet, right? Like it shows that unsustainable supply chains can transform in years and not decades and that leadership can come from all quarters. Let me... Perhaps we might finish on the packaging side because I -hmm. had done a lot of research on the viscose side, but I, again, thanks to Canopy, was gobsmacked by the numbers involved in packaging. Tell us that crazy number of exactly how many trees are cut down every year in order to feed our insatiable, rapacious appetite for paper packaging products. Rapacious, I love that word. There are 3 billion trees every year, 3 billion trees every year that are logged to make packaging. It's crazy. And I asked you that question with regards to viscose around roughly what percentage of those of that number might be from forests that we should be leaving to thrive. What's the story with packaging? Yeah, it's, uh, it's similar at this point. It's a bit higher. Um, packaging is a little different in that some grades of packaging um, have a lot of recycled content in them. Food grade packaging tends not to because of sanitary needs and requirements. But because the packaging industry is so massive, like it's just like more than half of the kind of papers that are produced globally are going into packaging, be it kind of the boxes that are arriving on our doorstep as part of e-commerce or uh, the wrappings around food or, or gifts. So it has a massive footprint. And of course, there's an obvious fashion connection. I mean, it's not just the materials that we use to make the garments, but those that we use to package and sell them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fashion is one of the largest industries, one of the largest B2C kind of uh, packaging consumers in the world. But we've been really encouraged. We, We launched our Pack for Good initiative about a year and a half ago now. We've had a lot of our brand partners that have worked with us on, you know, how to 
drive change in the in the viscose supply chain also expand the scope of their work to include their packaging uh, with us. We now have over 100 brand partners uh, and companies that are working to ensure that packaging doesn't drive the destruction of, of mm. the world's ancient and endangered forests as well. What would be your message in Fashion Revolution Week to fashion fans out there who want to see a real difference being made? Well, there's so much that each of us can do individually. We are primed for revolution in supply chains and you can support brands that are doing the right thing around sustainability, the way that you personally shop and think about clothing um, is really important. Obviously, all the basics that everybody that's a fashion revolution sort of devotee will already be on top of, like making sure that you buy for a lifetime and not just for a season, those kinds of things. But also just the confidence in the power that your voice has, like engaging your favorite brands. If they're not on the right side of an issue or if you're not sure if they are, asking them if they are. If they are on the right side, you know, congratulate them on it. And if they're not, then give them a nudge. Nicole, I wish that we could do this every month because I've got so many more questions. I'm Excellent. Really, Let's I'm do like, that. We Let's should. have a date. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. Because I love you Because I love you